0: Welcome to the St. Richard's Episcopal Church sermon of the week. We hope you enjoy this message by Reverend Cameron Nations. For more information, please visit strichards.org. So on April the 3rd, April the 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. had a sore throat. He had a sore throat and a slight fever, exhausted from his grueling travel schedule. And so it was for these reasons, actually, that he asked his friend and fellow civil rights activist, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, to step in for him and speak at a mass meeting that was to be held that night at the Bishop Charles Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the denominational headquarters of the Church of God in Christ. But as Abernathy took the podium that night and he looked out at the hundreds and hundreds of people that were gathered there, packed in this space, he registered the disappointment on their faces when it was he who got up to speak and not Dr. King. Now, I mean Ralph Abernathy was a gifted preacher, but there's only one Dr. King, right? You know, people were there to see him. And so, uh, Abernathy gets out of the podium, and he goes, he finds a telephone, and he uh, rings up Dr. King, and he said, look, I know you're not feeling well, I know the weather is bad, uh, but could you come and speak to these people? And a few minutes later, Dr. King arrives, and it's said that actually he was greeted with a standing ovation when he entered the room. That's pretty good to get one before you even talk, right? I mean, that's, okay, so the crowd erupts, and uh, Abernathy introduces his friend, Dr. King, and then King's be- King begins to speak extemporaneously for almost 45 minutes. And the recording of this address, you can find it easily online, you would never know for a second that he's not looking at notes. Right? He doesn't stammer, he doesn't stutter, he doesn't hesitate. And with his usual eloquence, he preaches and preaches. For like I said, it's like 43 minutes and 45 seconds, so we'll we'll say 45 minutes. Now, at one point in his speech, he shares about when some years before, he had been at a book signing in New York City, and he was actually at this book signing, stabbed in the chest by someone at the book signing, nearly died, he was rushed to the hospital, um, and the paper uh, had reported on this and had mentioned that due to the nature of his of his injury, where the wound was and all of that, if Dr. King had sneezed before he was on the operating table, it would have killed him. He would have died. And so, at a portion of this speech, Dr. King talks about how grateful he is that he didn't sneeze that day. Because had he sneezed, he would have missed so much. He would have missed the March Uh, from Selma to Montgomery, the March on Washington, he would have missed uh, the introduction of the Civil Rights Bill, all of these different things. Had he sneezed that one day, he wouldn't have been there to see. And so he gets to the very end of this speech, and he says, it really doesn't matter what happens now. He says, I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system that we're very sorry for the delay, but we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane and to be sure that all the bags are checked and to be sure that nothing would go wrong on the flight. We had to check everything carefully and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. He continues, and then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now, he says. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, King continues, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. Now, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so, I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord." That's the end of his speech, and less than 24 hours later, some of you may already know this story, less than 24 hours later, King would be assassinated on a hotel balcony at the Lorraine Motel by James Earl Ray at the age of 39. What hauntingly prophetic words those were at the end of his speech. And I can't read today's passage from Deuteronomy without thinking of this story. You know, sometimes I think that we are predisposed, maybe it's something in our nature, maybe it's Walt Disney's fault, I don't know. (laughs) But I think that sometimes we are predisposed to assume and to desire, certainly, the happily ever after, right? We want Dr. King to die in old age like he describes, having seen his calls for racial justice bear fruit. And we too have this sense when we hear Moses' story of how it should end, right? We follow a story like Moses's uh, from a baby in a basket on the River Nile to the halls of Pharaoh's power, to the wilderness of Egypt, We're there at God's call to Moses to liberate his people. We hear the words spoken mysteriously from this burning bush. We endure the plagues. We feel a sense of hope and relief as Pharaoh finally relents. We tense up once again as the Egyptian army closes in on the Israelites and we look with wonder and fear as the Red Sea parts, but then swallows up Pharaoh's army again. And we journey with God's people. We wait with them as they are left to wander in the wilderness for those 40 years, waiting for the land that God has promised. We hear their complaints, and we see God's provision. We sense Moses' frustration... And Moses speaks with God, knows God more intimately than we could ever hope to experience him. We expect that the story will end with Moses finally, after all this time, right, entering the promised land, locked arm in arm with his brother Aaron by his side, the sun setting majestically in the background, the swell of the orchestra, the choir, right, we hear it, we see it. We see the tears streaming down his face. He's made it. He's completed his task. But that's not the story we hear, is it? It's not the story we read this morning. Now we find out why Moses isn't allowed to enter the land in Numbers chapter 20. And so Moses knows already, God tells him you're not going to be able to enter the land. He knows that this is coming. But we see the end here in Deuteronomy this morning we read of Moses' final moments of him getting to see the land, see the goal right there, but not enter into it before he dies there on the mountaintop and is buried. Now, the language here in Hebrew actually seems that God is actually the one who buries Moses in the valley. Um, It's a little less clear from our translation, but Moses died and is buried in the valley. And that's the end, right? Every time I read this passage, I can't help but think about and wonder about what must have been on Moses' mind in these final moments. The sense of aching desire, that deep, deep longing for resolution. The grief, perhaps, at coming so close, but still being so far. Now, though we all long to reach the end of our journeys and the end of our stories, feeling like everything is tied off neatly in a bow, to feel like we are leaving the world in a good place, we too know that sometimes our own stories come to an end in a similar way, with things still unresolved, with a vision not yet realized or fulfilled. Here at the end, In these final moments, Moses is given a glimpse of his goal, of what he worked for, longed for, suffered for. And one could read this passage or this piece of this passage as a bit of cruel temptation. You know, like, God, why show Moses this if he's not going to make it? And Moses knows he's not going to make it. But I want to submit this morning that it is not out of cruelty. Waving it out like some sort of prize or carrot that Moses knows he can't obtain. But rather, this is a vision of hope, of hope and assurance assurance that it really was all for something. That the story, thank God, actually wasn't Moses's at all. It was God's story. It was God's story. And God's story will continue will continue. And we hear about this character, Joshua, who appears at the end of today's reading from Deuteronomy. Joshua is ordained by Moses to carry on, and it's he who will lead the people in to the promised land. And so there is hope in this vision, even if it is the end of the road for Moses. Now, this past week, I had uh, the great blessing of joining 300 of my clergy colleagues in the Diocese of Texas for our annual clergy conference. Um, It's the one time of year where people laugh at our jokes, you know, that's why we, we get together. But we, um, it is always a blessed time. It's wonderful. But this year's was particularly amazing. They always bring in wonderful speakers um, to talk to us. We gather and worship together. It's one of the few times we get to go to church, you know, throughout the year, which is a real blessing. We renew our ordination vows. It's really wonderful. Um, but I will never forget the speaker that we had on our final night of clergy conference. It was a guy named um, Daryl uh, Davis. Daryl Davis. And um, if you've never heard of Darryl Davis, it's Darryl with a Y, D-A-R-Y-L. Um, I don't even mind if you Google him right now, okay? Because he's, he's incredible. He's incredible, he's amazing. His story is, um, like I said, I will never forget it. Um, so Darryl Davis is uh, the longtime piano player for Chuck Berry, okay? And if you don't know who Chuck Berry is, you should also Google him right now, and I, I won't be mad at that either. Um, but, uh, but I mean, Daryl Davis, it's amazing because being Chuck Berry's piano player is actually the least interesting thing about Daryl Davis, if you can believe it. Um, and so, anyway, part of, I'll, I'll try to summarize his story, but I really do encourage you to go look him up um, today after this service. So, so Davis, um, his dad was actually the first black Secret Service agent that we had in the United States. He wanted to be in the FBI, but at the time, the FBI would not hire black folks. And so he became a Secret Service agent. And after um, that wrapped up, uh, Daryl Davis's dad worked in the Foreign Service. And so Daryl grew up uh, in all of these different countries around the world, going to international schools and living the life of a diplomat's kid, basically. And so when he was 10 years old, um, his parents, his family, moved to Massachusetts uh, in a suburb of Boston. They were living there, and Daryl joined the Boy Scouts, and he was part of a parade uh, with the rest of the Scouts. And as they were marching, there was a small group of, of people. Daryl says it almost looked like a family. Maybe it was not a lot of people. But they started throwing things at him. And at first, Daryl remarked that um, he was like, man, who, what, what do these people have against the Scouts? Right? Like, why do they hate the Boy Scouts so much? And then he realized that, oh, they're not throwing things at anyone else but me. The scout leaders rush to kind of put their body over him. You know, I mean, he was only 10, right? And they kind of get him off to safety. And after all of this, um, he gets home and he talks to his parents about this. And I mean, they were throwing like bottles and stuff, like he had cuts. And um, so his parents asked like, what happened to you? And he told them the story. And, and Darryl Davis says, this is the first time, my parents sent me down and this is the first time that I learned what racism was. Because I never experienced it. Growing up in an international context, I'd never experienced it like this. And this instance for Davis began a lifelong quest to answer the question, how can somebody hate me if they don't even know me? And this question haunted him so much that he decided he was going to do something about it. Um, And something about it is what exactly he did. He thought, well, how do I address this? Well, his solution was to talk to the most racist people imaginable. That was what he thought to do, to be able to understand and answer this question. So he personally reached out to the KKK, this black man, right? Actually has attended Klan rallies, as a black man at a Klan rally. And over the course of his life, I believe he's in his uh, mid to late 60s now, he has amassed a collection of over 200, I believe it is, Klan robes that have been given to him I mean like grand wizards of state's KKK chapters that have given him their paraphernalia after renouncing their association with the KKK and their position within it. And they don't know what to do, so they give it to Daryl. Now, how has Daryl done this? It's simply by entering into relationship with these people in an oftentimes very scary and sometimes very messy way, and yet it has had profound impact. I and mean, he actually brought with him, he had this little bag with him on the stage, at clergy conference, and he pulled out a robe he'd brought with him, and a hood, the whole thing. Um, it, uh, big flags with swastikas on them from neo-Nazi groups. And he's like, "All of these have been given to me by people I now know and count as friends and who before hated me before knowing me." Incredible witness. And that's not even the tip of it. I mean, he told so many other stories. And like I said, look him up. Um, There's been profiles and features done on him. and He was incredible. And then he ended his talk by going over to an upright piano and leading us in a hymn. I mean, like, it was just cool. You know, I'm not, I'm just going to tell you, having Chuck Berry's piano player lead you in a hymn is cool enough. And he told, anyway, it was amazing. It was amazing. But I just, I think about this and I think about the words of Jesus that we hear today. Right? I think about, well, what is the most important thing for us to do, Jesus? Well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things hang all the law and the prophets. It's what it's all about. And so even though Dr. King's story may have ended on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King's story is also God's story, and the witness is born forth in the lives of people like Daryl Davis. Now it strikes me as well, sitting in that room at Camp Allen and hearing these stories and being surrounded by clergy, that this is also in many ways the work of the church. That what the church is meant to do is to live into that phrase, that proverbial phrase that we plant trees the shade of which we will never enjoy, right? Right? That the work of the church is always investing in, discipling in, and carrying on God's story of promise and hope and redemption and resurrection. And so when we look for where the promised land is and how to get there, loving God and loving our neighbor can't help but get us just a little bit closer. Just a little bit closer. And as we look around at times like these, that seem scary and uncertain, where divisiveness and division and conflict and violence seem to rule the day, and we may reach a point where we look at the world and go, I'm not sure, this is the world I desire to leave behind. We can rest in the hope that we have been given a glimpse of that promised land, and that though our story may end, God's continues. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. For service times or more information on St. Richard's, please visit strichards.org.